Well, go ahead and open your Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there is a black hardback that has been referenced already this morning. I invite you to open to the very first gospel in the New Testament, the book of Matthew. And we're going to spend, be spending most of our time in Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Um, we're going to be talking about bold and certain promises. Bold and certain promises. How, uh, how would you <clears throat> describe a bold move? A bold move. Get, get that in your mind. How would you describe that? Now, maybe, maybe you made a bold move this Christmas, and you gave a gift that you were uncertain about. And you were anticipating a great response, but what you got in response was not what you were hoping for. Uh, maybe that was your definition of bold move. Well, let me, let me tell you a, a Christmas story. Uh, it's not really much of a Christmas story, more of a war story. But it happened during Christmas. During World War I in 1914, maybe you've heard this story, there were opposing forces of the British and the French against the Germans. And at Christmas Eve, or Christmas time at least, uh, I think over Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, the men... They decided to call a truce for a time. And these men that were in these trenches fighting against each other just, just hours before, they ceased fire, and there was a truce that was declared for just a moment anyways. And these men, they left their trenches. They, they even exchanged gifts. They held burial ceremonies for, for each other. They exchanged prisoners. And they even played games together. Now, this is a pretty bold move because this would be considered fraternizing with the enemy, which is punishable by death. So imagine being the first guy to step out of the trench, moving towards the no man's land where, where everybody in, in that land is basically dead, and you would move towards your enemy with an anticipation of them not shooting you, or at least hoping that they wouldn't shoot you. So imagine that kind of bold move on Christmas Day walking towards the enemy, possibly with a little white flag in your hand, hoping that you will survive the day. Now, this is a pretty risky situation. It's pretty risky. But everything worked out. Well, at least for a day or two, and then they get back to killing each other. So the, the event that was there it didn't necessarily change the war. It didn't necessarily change history. It was seemingly a bold move, and this first guy that stepped out, I'm sure he really felt like it was a bold and courageous thing that he was doing, but the impact that was there, it was seemingly really short-lived. Well, yesterday we just celebrated the birth of Jesus, and throughout this month we, we have celebrated the birth of Christ in different ways. We have lit Advent candles, we have sang songs, we have prayed prayers of remembrance. We have decorated our houses. We have watched the Charlie Brown Christmas movie. We have, we have done all of these traditional things that we do to remember the birth of Christ and to celebrate Jesus being born. And all of these things, they are meant to help us remember and to think on and to dwell on the amazing impact of Jesus on this earth. This is why we do these things. And maybe you, you haven't thought about that this season. You haven't really considered that. And and yes, you, you, you have this kind of this in general idea of, yeah, Jesus came, he died, he, he did these things. And that's kind of your understanding of what Jesus came to do. But into the real impact of your heart, the real impact that it has on your life, maybe it is, it is only distant to you. 
I was thinking this week about God's boldness, God's plan, and also the certainty of God's plan. As I began to think about really these different aspects of the, this event that we celebrated just yesterday, the, the birth of Christ, being born into this world and how amazing that really is, I, uh, I began to think through several things. And I was telling the guys this week that I had, had one intention as I started on Monday, Tuesday it was a different idea, by Wednesday it was a third idea, and so this is what you're getting, the third time is a charm, right? And, and so these thoughts that I, I kept having as I was preparing this message kept coming back to this idea of God's boldness and God's certainty to redeem humanity. So I want to share some of these thoughts with you, really just a, a couple of these thoughts and I know that's dangerous just to share my thoughts with you, but the first place that my mind went as I thought about the birth of Christ and the birth of Jesus coming to this world went all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. As you are probably familiar with this, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is happening after the fall of mankind. Adam and Eve, they had sinned against God and so God is speaking to Adam and Eve. He's promising things to Adam and Eve and also to Satan here. And here in verse 15, we learn that there's a promise of redemption, a promise of a Savior. It says the offspring, this is important, the offspring of the woman would be the one that would bruise the head of the serpent. What is really unusual about that is this is written from a Hebrew cultural perspective. So the mention of the offspring of the woman would be really an uncommon practice because the offspring are usually referred to the men in the culture, not the women. So this is, this is strange. At the very beginning of our Bibles, we have this very strange cultural thing taking place in this mention of the Savior, this Redeemer, that is attributed only to the woman, not the man. For God, the promise that the offspring of the woman would come to be the one that would crush the head of the serpent, this would be really an out-of-the-ordinary, strange kind of thing, and it would really seem to be improbable, impossible, if you will. So the first mention of a Savior coming to the earth is, is not likely in the realm of this culture, in the realm of human possibility, that it's only going to be the woman that's going to bring about this child. So this is a pretty bold thing that's being predicted here. And what we know about this Savior coming through the offspring of a woman is that he was conceived by the work of the Holy Spirit and, and did not have an earthly father. And this is where I want to take you to Matthew chapter 1. So Matthew chapter 1, look at verses 20 and 21 in that chapter. It says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now this had never happened before. This has never happened since. That a, a virgin would give birth to a child. This is completely and totally improbable in the realm of human possibilities. This is not in the, the ability of, of people that this would happen. But with God, there is nothing that is impossible. 
So when God makes a bold statement like the Savior would be born without an earthly father, people couldn't believe that, and people still don't believe that today. People reject that idea. They reject really God in that idea. And this is where we point back to what God had promised in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3.15, where he makes this promise, this is, this is a bold prediction, a bold plan that God had, an improbable plan that God had, but also what we, what we know and what we understand out of Matthew 1 is that this was an uninterrupted plan of God. For thousands of years, this is an uninterrupted plan of God to bring about a Savior just like this. This is a certain plan of God. Our God is one who can promise the impossible. And what do we see? We see the completion of that impossible in Jesus being born. The second thing that I thought about as I thought about God's boldness and God's certainty in what he has done is in reference to Matthew chapter 1, and what you have in Matthew 1 is the genealogy of Jesus. Also, you have this in Luke chapter 3. Now, when we examine those two genealogies, we find a lot of names in here, and a lot of times we just kind of skip over that because you don't like to pronounce those names. You don't really maybe understand who these people even are, and you don't want to go, you know, do all the research and find out who these people are. So you just kind of skip over it, and you move on. And you get to the last verse. It's like, oh, okay, Jesus was born. Well, I want us to consider something this morning as we think about this information that is in front of us, that Matthew gives us and Luke gives us. There's something really important here. We see names like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We, we think of those men being the, the foundational family of the Jewish people. <clears throat> we, we think of them being the, 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 the cornerstones of even Christianity. We think, yeah, they are the ones why we are here and then, again, we remember, no, Christ is the cornerstone. Later, we see men like Boaz. We, sing, we see King David along with his son Solomon. These are heroic figures that we read out of the Old Testament. We think, oh, the, these are ones that we could, we could model our lives after. And that would be dangerous, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. These men, we usually think of them in a very positive way. But in the midst of this genealogy... We also have in our, at our disposal a backstory on some of these individuals. We have names in here that also include Rahab. Rahab was the mother of Salmon, who was the father of Boaz. Rahab, she was a Canaanite woman who was a woman of the night, who welcomed two spies into her house at Jericho. We also know the backstory of David and Bathsheba which then begot King Solomon. And Jesus is included at the end of this genealogy. He is, he is at the end of these genealogies that are here in Matthew 1 and Luke 3. There are several mentioned who are really questionable individuals. And we might even be tempted to, to skip over them. If we were to talk about our own family tree, if they were in our own family tree, we might reference, you know, well, my grandfather is this. And as we go back, we're like, we just kind of skip over generations because we, we don't want to talk about that guy that was a, you know, a, a cattle thief or, or whatever. We, we skip over some of those. Maybe you'd be tempted to think that way. And maybe you were tempted even this year to skip over some of those family members that you didn't necessarily want to send a Christmas card to. And that was kind of your, well, do I have to? Well, it is my uncle. Well, I guess I will. Notice something here 
about these genealogies. Notice what God does. Notice what is included here for us. Who does God put into the lineage of Jesus? These, these people, these kinds of people that are likely ones that you can relate to or that maybe you are related to, people who are messed up, broken, who make terrible decisions. These are the ones that God has decided to put into and, and to work through to bring about Jesus into the world. That's a pretty bold move. Pretty bold move as you read back through these names and, and really understand who these people are. What a, what a bold move, God, that you would use such broken and messed up and ugly relationships and people. How could he do this? These people that are they're so messed up in every way, could they not have just derailed everything and made this one bad decision and wrecked everything? Couldn't they have just messed everything up? I would argue no. Why? God promised. God promised, not just with a bold prediction, but with a certain prediction. Let's think about God's promises throughout these generations. God makes a covenant promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, in verses 4 through 8. God says this, Behold, my covenant is with you. And you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made your father a multitude. I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between you, me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Verse 8. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojourning, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. I will be their God. Notice in there, a multitude of nations. A multitude of nations. God promises Abraham to be the father of not just one son, but a father of many ethnic groups many nations, but a multitude of nations. This, is, this idea, it's vast. And again, at the time that God promised this, how many sons did he have? None. And he was old. And what was the length of time that God promised this covenant to be established? Well, as he says, an everlasting covenant. This is what God promised. It's everlasting, unbroken Now, how are these two things fulfilled? That he's going to be the father of a multitude of nations and it's going to be the everlasting covenant. Well, we know on this side of history, we know that this happened through Jesus Christ. This has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We know this because of the New Testament. We know this because of the writings of men like Paul. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes this very specifically about this, uh, this promise. In chapter 3, verse 16 of Galatians, Paul says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Christ. Then if you go down to verse 29 in that same chapter, And if you are Christ, as in if you belong to Christ, 
then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. How can you be included in the promise to Abraham? To the everlasting covenant of God? Jesus Christ. It is because of Jesus that we, as believers, that believe in the work of Jesus Christ, that we can now be included or brought into the promise that God had made to Abraham to be the father of many nations. And it's only because of Jesus that this promise to Abraham is fulfilled. If we don't have Jesus, we don't have the fulfillment of the promise. It is only in the resurrected Christ that this promise is going to be an everlasting one. So if Jesus wasn't born into the world, then we, we don't have the start of the fulfillment. And if Jesus didn't resurrect from the grave, then we don't have fulfillment at all of this promise. Notice back there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 17, what Matthew is showing his readers, showing us this morning. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David, what's the number? 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, how many? 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon, uh, to Babylon, to the Christ is 14 generations. Anybody see a pattern? You're supposed to raise your hand there, okay? I, I knew most of you were awake, but it's just checking. So the math, if we do the math, it's 42 generations, right? 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus, but did you notice... Did you notice the pattern and the precision that is here? Notice the precise timeline that Matthew is pointing to. It's neat, 14-generation segments. How is something like this possible? Well, it is, is it just merely a coincidence? Is it merely accidental that it just worked out this way? Of course not. Of course not. What is the point of this verse? What is the point of this verse coming on the, on the end of the genealogy of Jesus? It's to show us something. It's to show us something true about who God is. It's not only a, a bold move by God to, to use these kinds of broken and sketchy people, but bringing Jesus into the world at exactly this time. It is a divine certainty. It was divinely certain. What we see from the story of Jesus coming to the world is that God is bold, but he is bold with certainty. Jesus was always going to be born into the world. Always going to be born into the world during the time that Herod the Great was king over Israel. And the same time that the Romans ruled over King Herod. Jesus, he would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born to Mary and Joseph. He would be born in the Mary manger. He was always going to be born in this way. This was always God's plan. Everything aligned perfectly to the bold and certain plan of God. So with this truth about Jesus being born this way and through this lineage that we have, what can we take away from that? What, what can we walk away with this morning in application to our life? Well, let me give you just a couple of things to think about. First thing being, if you've ever thought yourself to be just too far gone, too bad, too awful for God to, to welcome you into his family, 
you are wrong. You're wrong. The lineage of Jesus shows us that God is far greater than any kind of failure or any kind of sin. These people that are included leading up to Jesus proves to us that God can overcome any kind of dysfunction, any kind of major sin, even murder or sexual sins. So maybe you have you've really thought yourself to be just too far gone, that you, you are too far out there, you've done too many bad things, and you're unredeemable. But what is the evidence that we have from Jesus? God is in the business of redemption. God will redeem the most broken, the ugliest of situations. This also applies to all those people in which maybe you have thought to be too far gone, too lost. Maybe you are a Christian and, and you have family, you have friends, you have coworkers. Maybe it's your neighbors. They didn't put up enough Christmas lights or they had too many Christmas lights. And you think they're just too far gone. They're too lost. That there's no way for them to, to ever come to a saving knowledge of Christ. That they've rejected all of all of the things which I've tried to tell them. You know, I've said Merry Christmas to them every year for 40 years, and they have just, you know, bah humbugged me. Maybe this has been your interaction with people, and you have had this feeling, this thought of, and maybe you didn't say it, but this is the heart feeling that you have. Of, there's no way they're coming to Christ. There's no way they're, they're ever going to be a Christian. And so you've just written them off as lost forever, and you just go on with your life, even though they're in your life. And they remain in their sin. There seems to be no efforts of them changing or being any different, and you write them off. You've given up on them, so to speak. But what does the genealogy of Jesus prove to us? <laughs> what does it show us? No one is too far gone. No, no family is too far gone. If they are still breathing, keep praying. If they are still breathing, keep witnessing the truth of God's word to them. Keep believing that God will bring about a change in them. Don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Again, thinking through verse 17, 14 generations, 14 generations, 14 generations. Do you think there might have been some doubting that went on throughout those generations, those 42 generations of, is the promised one ever coming? Abraham himself, I'm sure, wondered, is God really going to come through? And we know Abraham doubted God because what did he do? He took the advice of his wife. That's dangerous, right? <laughs> oh, you have trouble at home. All right. So, we know that there was doubt. We know that there was dysfunction. But what do we see God do? He comes through. He comes through. So don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. Another thing that we can take away from this lineage of Jesus is that God is the expert in using broken people and broken situations. He's the expert. And maybe you believe yourself to be lacking in talent or skill or ability, or maybe, maybe it's in reputation or popularity or intelligence, or maybe a thousand other excuses that you use to say, well, God can't use me because of. 
Well, Moses tried that once. But the truth is, is that God has and will take all of your brokenness, all of the baggage, even if it's family baggage, and he will do something amazing with it because he's the expert at it. There is no one else that compares to him. Now, if you try to do this on your own, what will you keep doing? Failing? If you, if you try to do this and only do this on your, on your own ability, your own will, you will keep feeling inadequate. But when you humbly give your brokenness to the Lord, he will do something amazing with it. So come to the Lord humbly, like the shepherds did, like the wise men did. And he will take what you have and also what you don't have and he will do something amazing with it. He will bring a peace to all of it. He will, he will bring a joy through all of it, a hope with it all, and you will also know the love of God through all of it. Come humbly before him. The promises of God to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, David, and, and throughout all of the Old Testament have been completed in Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled all of the law and the prophets, as Jesus said. And maybe it would be, be helpful for us to maybe consider something else this morning. Consider using different words other than the promises of God. Because often we think of promises as, as well wishes. Or just simple, hopeful, empty, hopeful statements. Or just simply to pacify somebody else for a while. But this is not how we should think about God. This is not how we should think about his promises. And we see from the birth of Jesus coming to the world that God's plans, they are bold from our perspective, but they are certain. So maybe we should use different terminologies, different words. Maybe we should start saying the guarantees of God instead of the promises of God. Well, God boldly guaranteed was to bring a savior to the world to bring a savior to the world through a family tree that was pretty messed up he guaranteed that this savior would be born in a certain place at a certain time to a certain person all for a certain purpose and what is the purpose matthew chapter 1 verse 21 we are told this purpose says she will bear a son and you shall call his name jesus for he will save his people from their sins what is the purpose of jesus coming to the world to save his people to save his people from what their sins that's an impossible task how do you save somebody from their sins how do you save them from the internal things that are there. We don't have that kind of ability, but God does. This was his purpose. So the question now becomes, with this verse, is, well, how, how do you know if you are one of his people? Because he came to save his people, so how do I know if I'm his? Matthew is really helpful here. He writes further, there's many chapters in Matthew, and in chapter 4, you go ahead and turn, we have some pages to turn here, chapter 4, verse 17, 
Matthew records some of the first words of Jesus, Jesus' preaching ministry. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus demands, he's not asking, he's demanding repentance from sins. A turning away from sins. Why? Because you cannot embrace Christ while you are embracing your sin. You can't do it. You can't love Jesus and love your sin. Those two things do not go together. You cannot embrace him. If you are not willing to abandon your sin, you will not cling to him if you have not let go of your sin. So Jesus tells us those that are his are those that repent. Repentance is a requirement. It must happen. Then turn to chapter 5, the next chapter. In the first part of chapter 5, it's the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. In verses 3 through 12, your Bible probably titles that as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. These are descriptors of the attitudes and the character of those who belong to God. Or those who belong to Jesus. This is a, this is a description of what repentance from sin brings about. Repentance leads to this kind of character, this kind of attitude toward God and toward each other. Now, if these things, and I would encourage you to read through these this afternoon, if these things do not fit you, then there's a really good chance that you don't belong to him and you're still in your sin. If there hasn't been a change in character, a change in attitude, then it might be an indication that there was never actually repentance. Go to chapter 7. Same sermon, Jesus is preaching. Chapter 7. Look at verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not everyone gets into heaven. It's only those that know him. And he knows them. So how do we know that we know him? How do do we know this? Verse 21. Verse 21. Whoever does the will of the Father. Whoever does the will of the Father. Doing the will of the Father does not mean that you're doing things in order for you to earn points with the Father. This, that kind of thinking... Those kinds of thoughts is exactly the group that gets denied entrance. The group that says, well, didn't we do all these things? Didn't I earn enough to get in? Didn't I appease you? Didn't I I do what you wanted? Jesus says, I never knew you. These are the ones that do not get in. These are the ones that do not belong. The ones that think that they have the ability, the power, the the right to get into heaven. Jesus says, I never knew you. 
What Jesus is pointing out in verse 21, those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven, when he says that, he is meaning that you actually want what the Father wants. You're not just checking boxes and, and, and making sure that you've got everything in line so that you are, you know, first in line to get into heaven. No. Jesus, he's referring to the heart, and really all of the Sermon on the Mount is getting at the heart. Is your heart right? You go back to chapter 5, into the Beatitudes, has your heart been changed by God? Are you humble before God? Do you want what the Father wants? Do you actually love the Father? Do you actually love Jesus? Does your heart want what the Father wants? Not just trying to earn some points with him. And look at the next verses there in chapter 7, verse 24 through 27. Jesus goes on, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. But the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So what's the point here? What's the point with this story that Jesus tells, this, this parable? The point is, do not merely be hearers of God's word, but be doers. And not doers in the sense that you are earning your way to heaven, but doing what the Father wants because you love the Father. Doing what Jesus wants because you love Jesus. You've been changed. And so if your lifestyle, your attitudes, your behaviors are not being conformed to what Jesus tells us to do in the Scriptures, then what should be our righteous conclusion? Well, you probably don't really know him, as it says in verse 21 and through 23. So how do you know if you belong to Jesus? What has Matthew told us in his writing? Repent of your sin. Walk under the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know that I know him? I keep turning again and again and again from sin, and I keep trusting and trusting and trusting in his ways. I love him. I love him, and because I love him, I, I want to do what he wants. These are the ones that belong to Jesus. And those who do not repent and do not walk in the words of Scripture do not belong to Jesus, and they will not be saved from their sins. Now, that's a bold statement, but it's a certain one. And why is it certain? Because this is the word of the Lord. This is what he has guaranteed. God guaranteed at the very beginning that he would send a Savior, a Savior that would crush Satan and sin. And what do we see happen? Exactly that. And so we know we can trust his word. So whenever he promises that he will save his people and there are some that he will not because they refuse to humble themselves and turn to him in repentance and faith, we know he's certain. He came at exactly the right time in exactly the right way. God makes bold moves, but his boldness, understand this, his boldness is never made with an uncertainty or any kind of wishful thinking. He always acts with precision. So the really good news for us is that God's bold statements or 
promises or really guarantees that he makes. We know they're guarantees because of his son. Because of the son coming into the world, because of the son going to the cross, because of the son rising from the dead, and because of the son going back to sit at the right hand of the father, we know that these things will come true. We know that they are not just empty promises that maybe we make, but they're certainties. Also, it's really good news how Jesus came. Not only did he come exactly the way that God had promised, but he came in spite of all of our brokenness. All of the ugliness of humanity. He came through a lineage that had all kinds of problems and dark moments. And what did he come to do? He came to redeem humanity. Redeem the worst. There's real hope in Jesus. There's real peace in Jesus. Real joy and real love in Jesus. The bold move that God made was to send his son across enemy lines. Across enemy lines. Not with the expectation to have a couple of just good, jolly moments and then go back to war. But he came with the purpose to save. To save sinners. To save some of his enemies. And how would he do that? He would give his own life as an atoning sacrifice for their sin. Your sin. My sin. This is what he came to do. And if you haven't repented of your sin against God, then you are still an enemy of God. You're still at war with God. You're still a rebel to God. But please, again, hear the good news. He came for you. He came to save you from your own destruction, your certain destruction, if you do not turn from your sin. He has promised that. Jesus promises to save you from the impending wrath of God. If you would believe in him, if you would follow him, what is his promise? His promise is to save sinners. Sinners that would humbly look to him. His promises, they're not just bold predictions of the future, but they're guarantees. They're guarantees of the future. And why are they guarantees? Because he is the author of the future. Christian, be encouraged with this truth. Be encouraged this morning. Encouraged with the truth that your Father in heaven is one of certainty. He is a certain God. He has made promises or guarantees to you, and so what should we do? We should walk in those. We should live in those. And we should share those. Share those guarantees with others. We're going to go to the time of reflection this morning, and what I want you to do is I've listed just a few promises of God in the New Testament. I want you to go and find one of those, and it's been just a few moments praying through that, thinking through that. Maybe you want to write all of those down in your notes and go back later and look at those today, but I want you to think on not just the promise of God, but the guarantee of God in that passage. Spend some time this morning reflecting upon that, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll sing one final song together.